Good morning. I invite you to open a Bible to the book of 2 Thessalonians. Second of two fairly short letters written by the Apostle Paul to a church much like this. Believers in Jesus in a local community known as Thessalonica. That's where you get the kind of unusual name. Um, And we've been looking at these two letters because they have a lot of information, a lot of truth about our ultimate, about our ultimate future and uh, what, what we are looking forward to, uh, what, what will happen after this life. And this message is the second half of one we started last time, talking about this day in the future that's coming, this future day when Jesus will return as he promised, and he's going to put an end to all evil, going to carry out God's perfect justice for all wrongdoing. And this is what the Bible refers to as the wrath to come. We see that expression in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verse 10, saying that we who believe in Jesus, we're waiting for God's Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And wrath is God's unwavering, uncompromising hostility toward all evil, his determination to put an ultimate end to it. And when Jesus returns, the the very sobering truth is that anyone who has not turned from their sin, anyone who has not obtained the deliverance or received the deliverance that Jesus obtained for us through his death on the cross, anyone who has not repented and turned to him will experience his judgment. And I mentioned last time, this this reality, this sobering reality um, about this coming wrath, if we're, if we're believers in Jesus, this, this truth is meant to be both very uncomfortable and comforting. And it just depends on our situation. If, for example, we are too comfortable in the sense that we are tempted to be apathetic, lazy, disengaged in the things of God, then this truth of his coming wrath is meant to provoke us, to stir us up, to take sin seriously and fight it in our lives because God hates it. And to rely more and more on Jesus because he alone can deliver us from sin. And to engage, to engage in the mission he gave us to take this good news of his deliverance to the whole world like Paul and Diana Mayhew are doing in Chinese culture. So it's meant to provoke us when we're tempted to be 
disengaged, lazy. But when we're tempted to despair because evil is all around us and evil is in us and evil seems to be winning, then this truth of God's coming wrath is meant to comfort us. Because the day is coming when God's justice will have the last word. Evil will not. Evil will be no more. That's the comforting side of God's wrath. And it's that comforting side that's emphasized in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. This is what we began to look at last week, so let's read Chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians, beginning at verse 6 down through verse 12, and I'm reading today from the New International Version. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, the angels of his might. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction, everlasting ruin, shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. There are at least two comforting truths here about this coming wrath. We, we looked at the first one last time, which is that this coming wrath, this coming judgment will be fair. It will be fair. We often struggle with the, the thought of God condemning anyone Because we worry that it's unfair, that eternal judgment, eternal condemnation sounds to us just way too severe. The the punishment doesn't fit the crime. It's too severe. But the crime of rejecting God, the crime of despising God is actually far worse than we tend to think. And the punishment is actually a perfectly fair consequence. Hell is what justly follows when someone chooses life without God. So that was last time. If you missed it, you can always go to our website, philida.org, and you can listen there. Let's move on to the second comforting truth. The second truth about this coming day that ought to comfort us when evil rears its ugly head, and that is this, it will be glorious. It will be glorious. And I'm sure that sounds weird. 
How could something as terrifying as God's wrath be glorious? Well, the answer is because it's going to reveal glorious things about the Lord Jesus. Notice verses 6 and 7. God will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. To reveal means to uncover or unveil or disclose something that is currently hidden. Well, what is it that's currently hidden? Jesus is. Jesus is. You, you can't see him with your physical eyes. There's nowhere you can go and actually see Jesus with, with your physical vision. We see him now only with the eyes of faith, indirectly, as we look in Scripture, as we experience his goodness in the lives of others, his presence. But it's indirect. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, now we see in a mirror dimly. If you know anything about you know, mirrors from ancient time, they're just like a polished piece of metal, like a really nice waxed car. But if you look at it, you can see a dim reflection, but it's not, it's not very clear. And that's the idea. We see now in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And it's when that face-to-face -face moment comes that we're going to see something we have never seen before. The unveiled majesty of Jesus. So Titus 2.13 says, we're waiting for this. We're waiting for, he calls it our blessed hope, our happy hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when we see His glory displayed in all that He is and in all that He does, including carrying out God's wrath against evil, when we see His glory, what, what's going to be the impact on us? who have put our trust in him, who have fled to him for refuge from God's wrath. What, what's this going to do to us? Verse 10, on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. We're going to marvel. It's kind of an old word. It means we're going to be amazed, amazed, astounded astonished, overwhelmed with feelings of awe and wonder. It's just going to blow us away. Makes me think of Revelation chapter 1 where we have this description of an encounter between Jesus and his apostle John. And John was one of Christ's 12 apostles who during Christ's earthly ministry was probably, well, he was one of the closest, if not the closest, to Jesus. 
And in Revelation 1, this is, this is many years later now, John is given a vision of Jesus in his glorified state. His majesty no longer veiled. And John writes in verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Completely overwhelmed by just a glimpse of his glory. And I think that's a really good reminder especially for those of us who've maybe been Christians a long time and we've read the Bible a lot and we know a lot of Bible truth and, and we're tempted to think, we know Jesus pretty well. We know him pretty well. And maybe we treat him a bit casually. Well, John's experience reminds us never to think we've got Jesus all figured out. Because when you see him on this day, I promise you, you're going to fall on your face. And you're going to be astonished at how little of his glory you have known. Because he's infinite. He's infinite. There is so much more of his glory to be revealed. What we know of him today, even though it's accurate, I think it's like a Dixie cup full of water compared to the ocean. There's so much more. And on this future day, on the day of God's wrath, we're going to see things about him. We're going to see things about him that absolutely amaze us. Just going to stun us. I want to talk about three of them. Three amazing displays of Christ's glory, if you want to use that word, or, or facets, or I, I don't even know the word to use. But three things about him that are absolutely glorious that we're going to see on that day. First, we're going to be amazed by his appearance. Just what he looks like is going to amaze us. It says in verse 7, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Blazing fire, literally, flame of fire. And fire is used throughout the Bible to describe God's appearance when he appears to people, when he, when he makes himself known. And if you know uh, the story of, of uh, when God first appeared to Moses in the wilderness... It says in Exodus 3.2, And the angel of the Lord, the messenger of Yahweh, appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, Moses looked, behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And then when the Israelites, when Moses led them out of Egypt, when they escaped from slavery in Egypt, it says that the Lord Yahweh went before them in a pillar of cloud by day, and a pillar of fire by night. And then when they all came to Mount Sinai to receive God's instruction, uh, it says in Exodus 19, Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because Yahweh, the Lord, had descended on it in fire. And the prophets 
When they speak of the future coming of the Lord in judgment, they also use this, this uh, description. Isaiah 66, 15. For behold, the Lord Yahweh will come in fire in his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. Malachi 3.2, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire. And John in Revelation 1 says, when he looked into Jesus, his eyes looked like a flame of fire. I mean, are we talking real fire here? Isn't this symbolic language, you might think? Well, if it's symbolic, it doesn't mean it isn't real. The symbol stands for something. And in this case, what it stands for is a reality that's incredibly awesome. Jesus is the embodiment of God's purifying power. His purifying presence just as a refiner's furnace burns away all the impurities in gold or silver, so the immeasurable, okay, you can't even measure it, the purifying power of God in Jesus will refine away all evil from God's creation. And when you see that, when you see the purifying power of Jesus on display like fire, you're going to be stunned. You're just going to be stunned. And by the way, I think it's worth mentioning here that this description of Jesus that we have about the blazing fire and the angels of his might, that only makes sense if Jesus is fully equal to God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. He's God. In fact, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that all of the first Christians would have been very familiar with, including the Apostle Paul, the language in Isaiah 66.15, it uses the very same words to describe Yahweh, the one true God, as Paul uses here in 2 Thessalonians. It's the same, same verbiage. And in the words of Hebrews 1.3, the Son, the Son of God, is the radiance of God's glory. The radiance of God's glory. And that radiance is going to amaze you and delight you when you see it. You know, I don't know, we just had Fourth of July and attempted to blow up our county. But I don't know if you ever remember when you were young and the first time you heard and saw a gigantic firework and you just went, <gasps> and you were in awe of that power and that burning wonder. We're going to be amazed by his presence. Second, we're going to be amazed by his justice. By his justice. His justice is going to amaze us. Verse 6, he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. He will give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. Verse 8, Jesus will punish those who do not know God. Remember, we talked about this last time. 
This is not the ignorance of, of innocence. Oh, I just didn't know better. This is a culpable ignorance. I should have known, but I chose not to. To punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel. Jesus comes to execute justice, to right every wrong, to remedy every injustice that's ever been committed. And you know, that's something we long for, don't we? We long for that. Because we hate injustice. Well, sometimes we do. Let's face it, we can be pretty inconsistent. Can't we? I mean, there are some injustices that really bother us. And then other injustices, not so much. True justice, true justice is a rare thing in our world. And because, because our fallen human hearts are inclined to lean on our own understanding instead of trusting in the Lord with all our heart, uh, we, we talked about this last time, we, we fret, we worry over this thought of this coming day of judgment and wrath as if, as if somehow somebody might not get treated fairly especially if it's somebody we know and love. And we, we can fret about that. But as we looked at last time, our fears for this are completely unjustified, completely misplaced. As I mentioned previously, this passage is full of words that emphasize that God's judgment is always right. It's always fair. It's always just. In fact, we get the very meaning of justice from him. If God did not exist, there wouldn't even be such a thing as justice. It's his nature to do what is right, to do what's just. He can't do otherwise, and so there is absolutely zero chance that Jesus is going to get it wrong, that he'll do anything unjust. In fact, the exact opposite is true. He's going to execute justice so perfectly with such brilliant insight and such perfect fairness, and we're just going we're, we're to marvel. We're just going to go, wow. There won't be any second guessing. There won't be any disputing. Oh, I don't know, Jesus. I'm not sure you took everything into proper account here. There's not going to be any thinking that there might have been a better way. No, no, we're simply going to be amazed at his justice, at the wisdom of the judge. Just going to completely astound us. There's a great story about Solomon in our Bibles when he first became king of Israel. And he rightly so was a bit intimidated by this responsibility to lead God's people and so he prays, he prays that God will give him the wisdom he needs to govern the people of Israel properly. And that prayer pleases God, and it says God answers him, and he basically makes him the wisest guy on the planet. Well, this is soon put to the test in a case that comes before him. And if you've never heard the story, this is really cool. 
So there's these two women who live in the same house, and they both give birth to baby boys within just a couple days of each other. And then one of the babies dies in the night, and when his mother realizes what's happened, she switches babies with the other mom. And so the other mom wakes up in the morning, and her baby's dead, but then she realizes it's not her baby. She figures out what's happened. You can imagine how well this went over. So this eventually comes before Solomon, and uh, he's got a, you know, both, both moms are claiming that the living, boy, the living boy is theirs. There's no one else who lives with them who can verify the truth, which one's telling the truth. And Solomon's got to decide. Now, if you don't know the story, just put yourself in that place. So Solomon says, hey, I know. One of you guards, take your sword and cut the child in two, and we'll give half to each mother. That's fair. And the actual mom immediately says, no, no, don't do that. No, just give him to her. That's okay. Just please, please don't harm him. Which is how Solomon figured out that she was his mother. And this is how the story ends. 1 Kings 3.28, listen. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they, had per, they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. That's what it's going to be like with King Jesus. Only not just one case. Hundreds, thousands of cases. Every, every situation where there's an injustice that needs to be made right. And we're, we're going to stand in awe of his justice. Going to be amazed. One more. We will be amazed by his grace. You had to know this was coming. You had to know. Amazing grace. But you know what? This is, this is one of those things that we can just start taking for granted. We sing about it all the time. We talk about it all the time. You know? Yeah, God's gracious. Verse 12. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. Look at this. That Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to, in accordance with the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is that grace? Notice, it's not simply that we escape wrath it's that we share in His glory. That is astounding. Chapter 2, verse 14. To this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Back in 1 Thessalonians 5. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us who died for us, who died for us, so that whether we wake or sleep, whether we're living or dead, we might live with 
him. I, I don't know, I wonder how you feel when you hear that, when you hear that Jesus died for you, but I will confess, I'm afraid I've heard it so many times, Jesus died for you, Jesus died for you, Jesus died for you. I'm afraid I've heard it so many times that I, I don't feel much of anything sometimes. Nothing like the amazement and wonder I should feel. And, and I think part of the reason, if you're like me, part of the reason is because we don't see our sin as the horrible thing that it really is. And so we don't feel all that amazed that Jesus delivers us from wrath, the wrath our sins deserve, by taking that wrath on himself. Yeah, we hear about his death, and yes, it was awful, we know that. But I think we're prone to think of his suffering mainly in physical terms. But as Tim Keller points out, that overlooks his deepest agony. Uh, listen, I'm going to quote from Keller here. His body was being destroyed in the worst possible way. But that was a flea bite compared to what was happening to his soul. When he cried out that his God had forsaken him, he was experiencing hell itself. And this makes emotional sense when you consider the relationship you lost at that moment, that experience. If a mild acquaintance rejects you, that hurts. If a good friend does the same, that hurts far worse. But if your spouse walks out on you saying, I never want to see you again, that is far more devastating still. The longer, deeper, and more intimate the relationship, the more torturous is any separation. Well, the son's relationship with the father was eternal and infinitely greater than the most intimate, passionate human relationship. Jesus went into the deepest pit and most powerful furnace beyond all imagining he experienced the full wrath of the Father and he did it voluntarily for us. Beyond all imagining. Yes, it is beyond all imagining now. We just can't wrap our heads around this grace, this love. But on that day, on that day, when we see the wrath of God displayed and we realize that could have been me. That should have been me. That is the wrath my sins deserved. And then to know that Jesus took that. We are going to gain a far deeper appreciation of just how great his love and his grace really are. We're going to be amazed. Go back to that moment in Revelation when John saw Christ's glorious appearance. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now, what comes next? Then he, Jesus, placed his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. Verse 
when this day comes and you see Christ's glory unveiled and you fall on your face trembling at the wrath you deserve, if you belong to Jesus, he will touch you and he will say, don't be afraid. I took care of it. I took it all for you. And your heart is going to be overwhelmed with joy that he has taken that wrath completely from you. You're going to be amazed. So I say, let's start being amazed now. Let's start being amazed now. If you have not yet received his deliverance from wrath, do it now. Do it today. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Say, yes, I deserve God's wrath, but Lord Jesus, I believe you died to take it, so take mine. Take it all, and he will. Receive his deliverance now. Trust him and follow his leading now. He knows what he's doing now. Be confident now. Be confident now that he will right every wrong. And he will do it more fairly, more perfectly, more thoroughly than you ever could. Now notice the power of this. When you know he's going to settle all your accounts perfectly, that frees you. That frees you from any need to be bitter, any need to, you know, settle it yourself. You just let him handle it. And he will. Okay, when, when Christ calls us to forgive, he's not calling us to just, you know, Pretend it didn't matter. Pretend you weren't really hurt. No, he says, trust me. I will take care of it. And every sin, every injustice will be taken care of. It will be accounted for on the cross where Jesus took the wrath of those who trust him or it will be accounted for in hell. You don't have to do it. I don't have to do it. So be confident now and worship Jesus now for the glory you have seen. For the glory you have seen. (laughs) And then one day, you're going to worship him with far greater amazement at the glory you have not yet seen. Let's be amazed now. Will you pray with me? I want to give you a moment or two to speak to this one whose glory is beyond my ability to describe. But my prayer is that God's Spirit is penetrating our hearts with this glimpse of His 
of Jesus' majesty, of his love, his grace, his power, his purity. And that you cry out to him, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And thank you, thank you for your grace. And in your grace, will you enable me to follow you and be amazed at you and worship you and obey you. Your ways are right. May I trust in you with all my heart and lean not on my own understanding. May I put away all bitterness. May I put away all thoughts of revenge. And I just trust you to do what is just. And Lord, may I just feel your embrace as you say, don't be afraid. Will you just take a moment and talk to him. Oh, what a Savior. What an amazing God you are. Lord, we long for the day when your glory will be revealed and we will see it. And Lord, May we live with that sense of awe and wonder now and live with that expectation that it's going to be much greater someday. Lord, come. May your kingdom come on earth. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven for your glory and for our good. We long for this day. And the Lord, if there's anybody here who has yet to to, to come to you, to escape the wrath that's coming. Lord, let them see your open arms and may they come to you and receive the grace that you give so freely. Lord, transform them with that. Set them free. Set us free from our fears. Set us free from anything that hinders what you would do in our lives. Be glorified, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen.